All right, we are in the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 41. We're going to look at the first, or all the 29 verses rather, and that's why we didn't read the scripture like we normally do on the video because it's, it's time consuming when we take a whole chapter. The topic we're going to find there, our almighty God issues a challenge to the gods behind the idols of the nations. The title of the message, Against All Gods. Let's pray. Father, this morning we've come to hear from you. Your voice, your clear voice, interpreted to us and spoken to us by God the Holy Spirit from your holy word into our heart of hearts, between our soul and our spirit, where only you can whisper your grace and mercy and love. There are folks here hurting emotionally, physically, financially, in, in every way, Lord. Minister to them, minister to us. Uh, there are those here seeking to know what their gifting is and uh, trying to fit in, Lord, to the body of Christ and all of that. Uh, knit us together, Lord. Put us together, cement us together this morning as living stones in your uh, wonderful temple. Lord, as we go through these scriptures, these verses in Isaiah, help them to jump out at us, Lord, in a way that is wonderful and marvelous. Your living word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. It is called ledge dangling. A staple in any action or adventure movie is the hero grabbing someone's hand after they've fallen over a cliff or a railing, pulling them up to safety. The ledge dangler commonly holds on by just the fingertips of one hand. They're just barely hanging on. Sam did it in The Return of the King as four-fingered Frodo gripped a ledge over the molten river inside Mount Doom. Despite the fact that Frodo's finger had been bit off and he was bleeding and that they were sweating from the thousand-degree water below them, Sam was able to not slip in grabbing Frodo and bring him to safety. And by the way, have you noticed in all of those scenes that the ledge dangler is always in the perfect spot to reach the hand? It's never like, man, I, w I wish I could get to you, but God bless you. Have you heard about Jesus? You know, I mean, it just, I can't reach you. And they're never right up on top of you. They're always, they're always right there. It's a miracle. The majority of people do not have the strength to save a ledge dangler with one arm. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking about weightlifters even. I mean, it is really difficult to do. And unlike in the movies, you only have a maximum of 60 seconds to pull it off. That was the finding of Mythbusters. At or before the minute mark, the dangler cannot hold on any longer and slips off. And so if you're going to rescue Frodo, you, you better be on it uh, because he can only hang on for 60 seconds. I think in the movie he hang on for like 30 minutes or something. It, just, it was one of those scenes that never ended, you know, kind of a thing. The Lord is the strong-armed rescuer of Israel. In our text, the Lord told Israel, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He reaches down, as it were, to save them again and again and again in their history. Gentiles, too, need rescuing. The Lord reaches out to us with his powerful arm and hand. Tragically, as we'll see here today, we sometimes prefer idols to the living God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your idol can't do anything but harm you. Number two, your Lord can do everything to help you. Let's take a look at idols harming us and 
beginning in verse 1. Now, you're going to get the most out of these verses by admitting you have an idol or idols in your life. The Apostle Paul described the Gentile converts in Thessalonica as turning to God from idols. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you've not been born again, Paul would say you need to turn to God but from your idolatry. And he doesn't say only a few people are involved with idols. He says if you're not a Christian, something else or someone else is the God of your life and you need to turn from that. Now the Apostle John wrote in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from idols. He's addressing Christians. You've been a Christian for a while, walking with the Lord. And he says, now you go ahead and keep yourself from going back to idols. And so idols are a problem for non-believers, for believers. Curiously, there is no agreed upon definition of an idol among Christians. If you start searching for definition of idols in the Bible, you'll get like the kitchen sink, as they say, right? I mean, there are so many different ways. There's not one, one agreed upon definition. We commonly say, well, anything can be or become an idol. Maybe that's true, but I think of that as a cop-out. You load so much information there that, well, if anything can be an idol, I guess I have to wait and see what is rather than think about it on my own because I don't have time to go from A to Z in my life. It's a really unhelpful comment. Now, among the better definitions I came across were these. Idolatry is an attack on God's exclusive rights to our love, trust, and obedience. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything that replaces the one true God. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in the word. None of those really do much for me. I, I follow them, but they, they don't, I can't remember them in a sense of what I'm actually looking for. Martin Luther's definition was, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Not bad, but I came across this, and I think I'm going to use this in my life. Idolatry refers to worshiping idols, images, or God substitutes. And if you think about it for a while, that covers everything that could possibly be an idol. It's either an idol, it exists in you know, material form, it's an image of some kind, or it's substituting for God in your life in some area. Let's jump into the chapter and see God versus gods. Verse 1, keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Here the Lord addressed all Gentile nations. We'll see that again in a moment. He invited them to come and plead their case as to whether their idols were superior to him. All of these pagan nations had idols. They worshiped Baal or Molech or, uh, you know, Ashtar and all these different things. And they were represented by objects and images, poles. Uh, Molech was like a, a barbecue type situation because they literally sacrificed infants there to his fire. Uh, and so they all had images like that. Now, as I read verses 2 and 3, try to guess who the historical figure is in these verses. I'll tell you, but you can guess. 
Verse 2, who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him, made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Well, later we'll find out in verses, uh, chapters 44 and 45 of Isaiah, this is King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire, known to historians as Cyrus the Great. And the Lord is putting us on notice here that he was raising him up to be his tool against the nations. Why introduce him now? Verse 4, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. Calling the generations from the beginning is a way of describing prophecy. In other words, the Lord knows what's going to happen from the beginning forward, beginning and end. Cyrus wasn't even born yet as Isaiah wrote this chapter. Isaiah is looking ahead to Cyrus. Now, critics say, of course he was born, and this must have been written after he was born. Why? Do you have some archaeological evidence? Do you have some textual evidence? Do you have any kind of evidence? No, but it's obvious because no one can prophesy like that. And so no one, two or three hundred years ahead of time, can say Cyrus is coming because how would they know that? And we would say, what? How stupid are you? No, we can't say that. I'll say it. You can call me and say it. My pastor would like to talk to you. But anyway, uh, and so they said, because we don't believe there is a God who can prophesy, then therefore this is fake. It's, it's after the fact. But God is talking about Cyrus, and he names him later on in the book. And that's what God is saying. He said, hey, come, let's talk about who is the real God. What can you guys do? Here's what, I'll, here's what I can do. I can tell the future 100% accurately. It's said that Nostradamus predicted the rise of Hitler. It's because he uses a similar word that they say, well, it must be a misspelling. The word is hister. Ever, any of you who follow Nostradamus, uh, hister, have you heard that? It's a big deal. Turns out hister is actually the Latin word for the Danube River. And so you've got Nostradamus over here saying, babble, 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 Danube, blah, blah, blah. And that's basically what he said. I mean, if you read some of his stuff, that's exactly what it sounds like. And then you've got the Lord saying, let me introduce you to Cyrus 200 years before he's born. 100% accuracy and detailed prophecy sets the Lord apart from other gods and all idols. I guess one of my points is, who cares about Nostradamus and whether his prophecies are true, which they're not? He's not worth five minutes of a Discovery Channel program when you've got a prophecy-keeping God who's 100% accurate, right? It's insane. I say other gods with a lowercase g because physical idols were understood by Jews and Gentiles alike to be representations of literal supernatural entities. Recall what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. They were attending feasts in the pagan temples because they were the best steakhouses in town. They were. People would come in and they would sacrifice meat to idols, animals to idols, and they would butcher them. And so this was the freshest, best meat, uh, you know, that you could get. And the Christians, uh, the Gentile Christians said, hey, you know, we can go in there where they're sacrificing to idols and having, uh, you know, uh, pagan, uh, you know, festivals and stuff, because I'm just going in there for the steak. 
The trouble was the feast involved idol worship, as I said, and the perversions that accompanied it. So here's what Paul said. The things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. He doesn't say, now the things they sacrifice, they sacrifice to harmless wooden idols that have no power, so don't worry about it. He says, no, these are demonic. You can maybe toss their idol like a football and you know, hide it under a bushel and stuff like that. But there are demonic entities, not behind everyone, although I would warn you about your garden gnomes. <laughs> Have your garden gnomes ever moved at night? We hesitate to talk about other gods because it sounds weird, it sounds almost sacrilegious, but uh, they are supernat there are lots of other supernatural beings, and some of them are called gods with a lower G. The second commandment assumes there are lesser gods. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It doesn't say you shall have no images before me. That, you know, it specifies gods. So verse 5, the coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Coastlands is, and this is my word of the week, a synecdoche. Yeah, that's what I thought too. A synecdoche is a figure of speech in which part is made to represent the whole. So coastlands, you know, I, the Gentiles all the way to the coast, it means the Gentiles all over the world. It doesn't just mean specific Gentiles. And so synecdoche, man, synecdoche, New York, right, gets its name from there. Verse 6, everyone help his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. Rather than turn to the Lord in repentance, the nations are going to form alliances in order to resist him. And so God says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus. He's going to come against you as my instrument. Rather than repent and seek the Lord, they said, we have a plan. So the craftsman, verse 7, encouraged the goldsmith. He smooths with a hammer, inspired him who strikes with the anvil, saying it's ready for soldering. Then he fastened it with the pegs that it might not totter. And so these are different craftsmen that would work on different aspects of, you know, the, these little idols. Hey, this guy's really, really good with a hammer. Wait until you see this guy smoothing with a hammer. And then the anvil guy is over here, you know, maybe he's from another nation. And, and now it's ready for soldering. And we're going to make the most beautiful, precious, valuable idols possible to represent Molech and Asherah and Baal and all that. And so when Cyrus comes with God, the Jehovah God, we're going to have a chance against him. Yeah, that doesn't happen, right? Drop down to verse 21 because it continues the talking to the Gentiles. He says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the later end of them or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know you are God's. Do good or evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. And so that last sentence is really, hey, do something. Do anything. The Lord challenged the devotees of the idols to accurately predict the future. And if they couldn't do that, to do something else to show that they were real, uh, to do anything at all, even maybe topple over. I mean, whatever, you know. Just, hey, show us that you're real. And, of course, it's a challenge that they can't win. The Lord loves these types of challenges. You might recall Elijah. He took on 450 prophets of the god Baal in a survivor fire challenge. 
They couldn't get fire, but the Lord did, and then Elijah killed all of them. And uh, it was a, it's a, the dialogue, Elijah's dialogue is really sarcastic the whole time. And he's challenging them, he's begging them, hey, you know, so at one point he says, maybe your God is on break. You know, maybe he's on his 15-year break or something like that because he's not responding to you. And that's what God is doing to these. And they say, hey, let's go. I, I can prophesy accurately, 100% accurately prophesy. What can you do? And, and why would people want to follow you? Indeed, verse 24, you are nothing and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Harry Houdini used to go around exposing psychic fraud. God exposed these gods as defrauding their worshipers. It was abominable to the Lord that they would choose them over him. They were no help to them while he was ready to bless them for their obedience. In fact, they were harmful to them, uh, Gentiles and Jews alike. I have raised up, verse 25, one from the north and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name and he shall come against the princes as though mortar as the potter treads clay. Now again, this is Cyrus, but didn't God say Cyrus would come from the east in verse two? Well, he did. And doesn't the sun rise in the east? Well, it does. How then does the north fit in? Because he says he also comes from the north. Well, Cyrus was Persian, but he conquered Media, hence the Medo-Persian Empire. Persia was east, Media was to the north. So Cyrus was from east and north. Pretty detailed stuff, Nespa, right? And that's what I mean. I mean, there's more detail later in this book, but God says, hey, I'm going to tell you some specific things that are going to happen, not, not blah, 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 blue, 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 and, you know, Cyrus, uh, you know, some really serious things. So verse 26, who is declared from the beginning that we may know in former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. The first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor. Who, when I asked of them, could answer a word? Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. And so this is God's conclusion about the other nations and their uh, lack of wisdom in going after the idols, that they're just hot air. The word righteous here means that our God is 100% right in all of his prophecies. It was simple choice, God or these gods. Idolatry refers, as I said, to worshiping idols, images, or God substitutes. Now, uh, you know, typically people will say, well, now here in America or in the West, you know, we don't really worship idols anymore. You know, I don't have a little tiki or anything like that. If you come over to my house, I don't have a, you know, an, an idol on my mantle that I bring to bed with me, you know, to watch over me. Um, and it's not my iPhone, believe me. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, you know, but you know, the truth is half of the world's population, 4 billion people, literally worships idols. You know, I, I, if you want to, you should go, you know, take a trip somewhere. We learned this the hard way in the Philippines in the 80s, uh, you know, where you step off the plane and everywhere there's idolatry. You know, Save Mart has one or two shelves of Mary candles, right, uh, and stuff like that. Everywhere we went in the Philippines, you could buy these idols, and every home had household idols, and it, it's weird. 
and creepy and oppressive. Uh, and so a lot of people in the world do worship idols in the sense of idols and images. Now we're a lot more, what, intelligent, I guess, or scientific, and we've broken free from that in order to worship other God substitutes that are more subtle. It'd be a lot easier if you're witnessing to a non-believer to say, you gotta get rid of this statue to Molech. Let's burn this thing right now because you've turned to God from idols. Instead, we have a hard time identifying our idols uh, and wondering what they are. Uh, you know, and, and not that, then we step in, well, anything can be an idol. Well, forget that. What is your idol? Uh, and because, you know, John, he said, keep yourself from idols means you can go back to idols or you can have idols. Otherwise, he wouldn't say that. And so we always want to figure out what our God substitutes are. They, again, lists go on and on and on, but typically we're talking about things like wealth or pleasure or power, honor, things that we substitute for God in our lives uh, and, and go after them or trust in them. And so that's between you and the Lord. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times we stop short, by we I mean the pulpit here, we stop short of giving you these lists um, because that's between you and the Lord. Uh, if you know the Lord, he's in you and the Holy Spirit wants to communicate to you, uh, you get alone with him and let him tell you what your idols are. I'm only going to pick the ones that don't relate to me, uh, you know, and, and put a burden on you. And so I, I trust the Lord that he can show you, but you need to be open. You say, okay, Lord, I want to keep myself from idols because I remember how they had me in their grip. Maybe I've introduced some new ones that I never had before. So what are they and what am I going to do with them? Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, a person will worship something, have no doubt. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we worship, we become. Now, we're going to go back and talk about believers in verses 8 through 20. And so go back to verse 8 for insight about the Lord's love for his servants. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. Now, I know I sound like a broken record, but whether it's the prophecy update or our studies, I am always telling you that when the Bible talks about Israel, it's talking about the ethnic descendants of Abraham through Jacob, the 12 tribes, not some spiritual Israel, not the church, not you and I, the nation of Israel who is in their homeland now in the Middle East. And this is a great verse, a proof verse. It says, you are Israel. You came from Abraham through Jacob. You're my friend and my servant. God is talking to the Jews. And just real quick, if, you get, if you're wrong about Israel and her place and the church's place in the scheme of things, you can never understand Bible prophecy and you'll start into allegories and analogies and nothing will ever make sense. Uh, God is dealing with the Jews. And you think, you say to me, well, Gene, why is that a problem? Well, author Scott McKnight, for example, he's a professor of New Testament at a Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. Uh, I don't have any reason to believe he's not a believer. He doesn't view the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel as related to Bible prophecy. And so if you ask him, if you, if you send your kid there to that university, and they ask uh, Professor Scott, Professor Scott, what do you think is happening with Israel in, in the Middle East with all this, you know, these wars? How does that fit into the Bible? He's going to say, the Bible has nothing to say about that. 
and they, he goes on to write a book with another guy that's called Revelation for the Rest of Us, in which they contend that it's just a book about personal discipleship. So I guess when you get to locusts coming out of the pits and, you know, you say, I better give up booze for Lent, otherwise locusts are going to bite my face off, you know. I mean, I don't know, you know, how people can be that way. Verse 9, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you away. Verses 8 and 9, tremendous, filled with theological importance, right? God says to Israel, I've regathered you from the ends of the earth. That's a modern regathering. I've called you from the farthest regions. You're my servant. I've chosen you and not cast you away. Now, the church serves the Lord as well. We're his servants, right? But Israel has many blessings that predate ours. Jesus came through the nation of Israel. The scriptures came through the nation of Israel. Uh, there's, Paul talks about the many benefits of Israel. Uh, and so the Lord says, no, you're my servant. Yes, they're in unbelief right now. You know, they don't know Jesus as Savior, but the Lord is still saying, you're my servant, and I will bring you to faith in me. And that's the point of the tribulation. Verse 10, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, this obviously is directed at Israel, at the Jews, but it is obviously in the nature of God. It is part of the character of God to do this for all who believe in him. He, we need not fear either or be dismayed because he is our God. Next to this verse, you should write, God want to hold my hand, right? That's, that's where it's at. And then you can sing that when you get low. I miss holding hands with the kids when they were little. Mostly it was simple, loving gesture, their little hand in your hand. But in parking lots or anywhere in Walmart, you hold their hands a lot tighter, right? Because you have superior strength to protect them. And that's the idea here. God holds your hand. It's endearing. It's loving. It's wonderful. But he protects you as well. When your little ones stumble and fall, do you let go of them and say, hey, hit hard? No, you, you still got their hand. You know, you kind of lift up a little bit and their legs are going like this. But they don't fall, and they don't even, they don't even say thank you. But anyway, uh, I have issues. No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I'm talking about. God, you know, as a good parent, won't let his children fall. I mean, we, we do get, you know, it doesn't always work out. Because um, we're clumsy. But God never falls or fails. He, he always hangs on to us. God want to hold your hand. When called to serve or suffer, we take stock of our own strength. And if we do, we'll find it to be less than we thought, less than we need. God forbid I would ever think or say, Jesus, I got this. I got this. If, if the Lord's asking you to do something at all, in obedience to his word or ministry, whatever it is, you cannot do it in your own strength. You have no strength to do it. But the Lord has all that you need, and you rest in him, and you wait upon him. An anonymous commentator wrote this. Do we not remember seasons of labor and trial in which we received such special strength that we wondered at ourselves? In the midst of danger, we were calm. Under bereavement, we were resigned. In slander, we were self-contained. And in sickness, we were patient. 
The fact is that God gives us unexpected strength when unusual trials come upon us. We rise out of our feeble selves. My own weakness makes me shrink, but God's promise makes me brave. Lord, strengthen me according to thy word. So often we, we come to the weakness part, right? And something's going on and it's like, I, I can't do that. I don't know what's happening. My life is falling apart. It's, you know, whatever it might be. You're just cowering back in fear because of the trial that you're in, seeking God substitutes to get out of it and whatnot. But that's exactly how it starts because then God says, now I can give you unbelievable supernatural strength. What is it that Eugenie says in Aladdin? Phenomenal cosmic power, you know, and stuff. But the Lord says, now I can use you. Yeah, you know, just do it. I've asked you to do it, now do it. Because I empower you, and of course you can't do it. You'd be an abject failure by yourself. But I promise to, what, never leave you or forsake you. I permanently indwell you, so let's do this thing. And all of us, I'm sure, no matter how long we've been Christians, can remember some areas of victory in these areas where we thought, wow, I... Yeah, I guess I, I, I guess I was pretty patient, but it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And I, I guess I was this and that, but it was the Lord. And so I see what the Lord can do as I wait upon him. Behold, verse 11, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them, those who contend with you. Those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. Despite the unprecedented hatred of the Jews, Israel will always prevail. It doesn't mean they would not be conquered or taken captive. It just means they will endure to the end. Take a look at Israel's more modern history with the wars they've been through, uh, and you'll see that obviously there's a divine uh, protection, right? Surrounded by hostile nations, you know, I don't know how much the population, 10, 20, 30 times their population and all, and yet they win and win and win. Uh, and just, they can't be wiped out. There's something going on that defies rationality. Uh, you know, it, and, and that's why this war is so serious. Because, uh, you know, I think some of these groups want to destroy Israel finally for the last time. And Israel, I'm afraid, is going to keep, well, if I was Israel, I'd just keep going this time. I'd say, look, we're taking Gaza. We own Gaza. We, we're going to take back. I was looking at a map the other day. It's a little bit off subject, but I'll see if I can find a copy of it and get it to you somehow. But they showed the, uh, the Middle East. They showed the Israel and the land as God originally gave it to them, the borders of the land, which they've never uh, occupied all of it. And then they showed the modern state of Israel when it, they first became a nation again uh, in 1948. And then they showed what they are now, and it's like a tiny sliver of land out of what they originally were promised by God. And so, you know, if you're the Jews, and I think you just, you know, you say, hey, we don't want to just fight piecemeal. We're going to take back our land. And um, what that does to the world, I don't know. But we know the end, right? People want to know if this is the end of the world. The world doesn't end. You realize that, right? The world is not coming to an end it's coming to a glorious new creation. And this is how God is going to do it. So uh, don't be worried. Don't be afraid. Things could get rough, but we have the Lord. You know, I get out of my notes, then I don't know where I am. Verse 13 is where I am. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. 
Fear not, you worm. Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them uh, and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Now, calling them worms isn't derogatory. This is a, an agricultural metaphor. Uh, God's saying, hey, you, you're like farmers who employ worms to work your field. And, you know, worms are good, right? You want worms, they aerate the soil and they do good things. And so, but here, Israel, you, you guys are good farmers with a handful of worms. But you know what? I've got some machinery I'd like you to try out. Here's this huge, and this, this is some kind of threshing machine that's coming that does various things. And God's saying, this is you, this is me, this is what I want to do for you. Uh, and so it's a, it's a power thing. God's saying, I am powerful. These other gods, not so much, but I am powerful. Stick with me. Verse 17, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the oil tree. I will set it in the desert, the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now, we read in the Bible of a time when uh, Israel has to flee into the wilderness because the Antichrist has come to power. And, and uh, they have to go through the Judean wilderness. And what I see happening here is God saying, I will make oases along the way. You, you'll suddenly come to a place where all seven of these trees will be growing at once, which never happened. These wonderful shade trees and water will be in places you never imagined it could be as I watch over you and get you to safety. Uh, and so it's, it's a beautiful thing. These are miracles of preservation. God will provide water and shade. Do you fall down a lot? I wouldn't say it's a lot, but I am prone to falling now, and I've had some really fun ones. Uh, a couple of years ago out here in the courtyard, not only I fell, but I learned, this is a weird thing, I can't run anymore. Uh, my, my mind thinks I'm running, but my legs are way back there and stuff. And so, so uh, the smallest gene, Gennaro, was out in the courtyard. I wanted to sneak up on him and do something, you know, like that grandpas do. Uh, and so I started to run. The next thing I know, I was headed to the ground in that slow motion way that you go like this. Oh, oh. My head bounced off the ground like a basketball, and I thought, I I'm fine. I don't know if I am fine, tell you the truth, but, and then I've got the sideways falls. That's, that's the problem I have. It's not always tripping. So, I mean, people trip and fall, right? But now I drag my legs, you know, I'm like this. And, and, but if I turn sideways, sometimes I lose my balance. And so there's this one spot, I, I should have a field trip there to show it to you, but we have, a, we have a pot that I've got cactus in, right? And so I'm turning and all of a sudden I'm going down like this and I look and here's this cactus coming up at me. Luckily, it was planted, you know, and so I grabbed the thing as I'm going down, and I'm like, whew! Otherwise, I would have been cactus face or something, you know, but... So you understand what I'm talking about here. God holds you. If you're holding on to God, you can't fall. He won't let you fall. 
spiritually, and, and that's where we want to be. As Sam reached for Frodo, he said, give me your hand, take my hand, don't let go, don't let go, reach. Does Jesus reach out to you, or do you reach out to him? The answer to that question is yes. He does, and you do. And so I could tell you today that the Lord is reaching out for you. If you're not a believer, he's, his hand is not so short that it cannot reach you, but your sins are separating you from him. And he wants to take your hand and lead you to eternal life in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, we already saw that God says, don't go back into idolatry. Reach out and hang on to my hand. Don't wriggle. Your kid ever wriggle loose? Do you, you ever have a wriggly? Woo! You know, and stuff. And then they go running out onto the freeway. God says, no, hang on to my hand. And so, you know, theologically, people say, wait a minute, you know, Jesus this and the church this. Jesus reaches out. You reach out. Jesus once healed a man with a withered hand. He said to him, stretch out your hand, Mark chapter 3, and he was healed. Do you realize Jesus asked him to do something he could not do? He couldn't do it. I mean, it, 10 minutes earlier, if you'd looked at him and said, hey, reach out your hand for me. What are you, crazy? I have a withered hand. That's my whole problem. I have a crippled, withered hand that doesn't move. It just hangs out here, and I beg for a living. And Jesus said, reach out your hand to me. And he did. So, wow. Jesus can help you do what you can't do. That's what he's all about. Get saved. Come to God from idols. Keep away from idols. Praise the Lord. We're in the last days. Amen.